This is Esculapius, a podcast that uncovers the human side of our healthcare professionals. I'm your host, John Neary. My guest today is Dr. Ansara Vaz. Dr. Vaz is an attending anesthesiologist with NYU Langone Health in New York City. She received her MD from Weill Cornell Medical College and completed a fellowship in regional anesthesiology and acute pain medicine at Hospital for Special Surgery. She currently serves as vice chair of the diversity committee in NYU's Department of Anesthesiology. Ansara, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, so I wanted to start by just considering, I think, a a typical clinical situation uh, you'd encounter in anesthesiology. Um, If you have a patient, right, who's kind of nervous about undergoing anesthesia ahead of their procedure, how do you sort of uh, explain the process of anesthesia uh, to this patient? So the type of anesthesia that I practice is a little bit different from subspecialized and regional anesthesia. Um, so, and I do a lot of orthopedic anesthesia. So a lot of times, let's say somebody comes in for so like a hand surgery, the type of anesthesia that I do would be like numbing the arm and the hands and then giving some sedation to accompany that to make them comfortable. Um, so when I, when I speak with patients about easing their anxiety. I let them know that everything is safe and that at all times an anesthesiologist or an anesthesia provider will be with them, monitoring them, making sure that their vitals are okay and intervening at all if necessary. Um, I also explain to them, a lot of times the saying, don't be nervous, doesn't really help. People are still going to be nervous and anxiety provoking having surgery. Although it's something that I do every day, it's not something that the patients do. So sometimes I give them a little example of, um, for example, I have a fear of flying <laughs> and uh, um, I know that flying is very safe. The chance of anything bad happening is I'm more likely to win mega millions twice than anything bad happening on a flight. But either way, as soon as I get on the plane, I'm terrified and nervous. Um, and I equate that to them saying that we all know it's safe. They're going to do fine during the surgery and it's okay to be nervous. This isn't a normal day for them. Um, but know that they made a great decision with the surgeon that they picked. They picked an excellent surgeon and that their anesthesia team is also going to take excellent care of them um, with a physician at the, at the head of that team. And um, I, I feel like that provides a little bit of reassurance and can help ease some people's concerns. Yeah, can you, I know you said you uh, do a lot of orthopedic procedures. Can you speak more to kind of what's happening at a physiological level, right? When you uh, put somebody under anesthesia, what kind of happens with, uh, you know, within their body? Um. <laughs> So I think this was a, a, a bit longer of a, of a talk. I, I guess a, a crash course for our, our uh, you know, not necessarily uh, very technical listeners. <laughs> um, so so a lot of different things happen on a physiological level. We, so when someone says like, oh, are you going to give me for anesthesia? I always say it's a cocktail of medications because um, a lot of different things are happening to the body when you're under anesthesia in order to make sure that you're comfortable um, and safe throughout the whole procedure. So when you come into the room, of course, you want to make sure that your vitals are always going to be stable um, and that we intervene immediately if need be. So when you when patients come into the room, they lay on the operating room table and we put lots of monitors on, um, things to monitor their blood oxygen level, an EKG to monitor their heart rhythm. Um, we monitor how well they're breathing by looking at um, different, different um, so in addition to oxygen level, we also look at to see to gauge a depth of how well they're breathing and making sure that they're exchanging air adequately. Um, We also measure blood pressure. Those are some of the basic monitors for more invasive procedures and a whole other set of monitors that sometimes we have to look at to make sure that patients are safe. Um, After that's done, patients have an IV um, and then we give something to relieve anxiety. Um, That that medication helps ease people's concerns, takes away anxiety and also causes a little bit of it and it has an amnestic quality so it does cause a little bit of amnesia to help to help to make sure that people don't recall anything from the operating room or the or the procedure itself um we also give medications for pain because surgery is pain there there is um cutting of of skin there's wounds so those things are painful naturally and so we do give medications for pain um and we also give medications in various forms to help keep somebody asleep or anesthetized throughout the procedure Sometimes those medications can be given through the intravenous um, line. Other times we have people breathe anesthetic gases and that helps people stay asleep. Um, to make sure people are comfortable after the surgery, we, we give pain medications at the end. We also give anti-nausea medications um, and to prevent infections. We also give antibiotics. 
So it's a whole slew of medications that we give to make sure that the patient can go through the procedure safely. Um, some of these medications do have side effects, like some of these medications can lower your blood pressure, for example. So that's why we monitor blood pressure if that happens. There's other agents that we have that can elevate the blood pressure to bring it back to a normal level and make sure that the patient is safe and um, doesn't have any negative outcomes. Yeah, you talked about uh, being in the operating room. Uh, can you speak more to, I, I imagine, right, uh, at least I know from my work uh, in healthcare, right, uh, anesthesiologists can work with a number of different uh, surgeons on a different given day. So what's that, uh, what's that communication uh, channel like between you and a surgeon? And how do you, uh, you know, what, what kind of is the division of labor in the operating room when it comes to making sure you're taking best care of the patient between the, the anesthesiologist and the surgeon? So I think we, we work as a team with the, with the goal of um, providing the, base, the best patient care possible. Um, so there's always open communication, uh, depending, because anesthesiologists are everywhere. We're, we're not even just, we're outside the operating room as well. Um, there's some, we call them, um, there's procedures that are done outside the operating room. Let's say like, if you have a severe burn, sometimes you make like a burn dress, like a burn dressing change that you might need sedation for. Um, sometimes anesthesiologists go to the, um, to the emergency room to help intubate patients who come in um, with airway emergencies. Um, sometimes we, you might find us in an MRI suite providing sedation for a patient to help them um, go through an MRI safely. So we're all over the place and everywhere we go, it's important to first know the patient's history, know their comorbidities. So uh, comorbidities, you know, other um, um, health ailments they might have and, also, and think about how that affects the surgery and the anesthesia. And it's also important to have an open conversation with the surgeon about exactly what they're doing during the procedure. Um, not all procedures are cookie cutter, everyone's different. There's, you know, different nuances to each procedure. So you wanna know, for example, like do they expect there to be a lot of blood loss? If so, we wanna be prepared for that. We wanna make sure that we have enough blood available. We wanna call the blood bank and make sure that the, there's blood appropriate for that patient available. Um, if they anticipate there's going to be a lot of pain, we might offer the patient different type of pain modalities like nerve blocks or different type of catheters or epidurals to help with their pain after the surgery. Um, so we try to think about their whole perioperative course um, from when they come in. So what ailments they have, make sure they're first of all optimized for the surgery. If somebody has very severe asthma, you want to make sure that they're up to date on all their asthma medications and that they're um, that they're coming to surgery as optimized or as best as they can um, so that they can have the best chance of undergoing the procedure and the anesthesia well. Um, and then during the oper operation itself, this is always open communication. Things can change at, at the turn of a, in, in a second. Uh, and you always want to have those lines of communication open. There could be unexpected bleeding or the patient could suddenly have an arrhythmia and that things need to be acted upon immediately and, um, and swiftly. And so, it's, it's always a, a team environment, I would say, um, and with all of the, the staff in the operating room. Yeah, you're kind of leading me into my next question here, right, which is, uh, you know, you want to make sure you establish that open line of communication. Things can change very quickly when it comes to a patient who's who's having a surgery. Um, so what are, what is, are you kind of, what are some of the complications you're kind of on the lookout for uh, as an anesthesiologist? And, and what are some of your, the tools in your toolkit, right, if you need to to quickly stabilize a patient? Um, well, it's, it's anything can, anything can happen, <laughs> to be honest. Um, so we're all, we're always on the lookout, which is why like, our, our, our training is so extensive. Um, as an anesthesiologist, we're physicians. And so we go to undergrad, we go to four years of medical school, um, we have a year of internship, we have three years of anesthesia residency, and then we have, um, some of us go for even additional training like I did and do like another year or, or in fellowship. Um, some people do multiple fellowships. So we have like a full understanding of the um, physiology of the patient. We understand um, parts that we understand what's going on on the surgeon side as well. So that we're always there and ready to, um, to intervene if needed. Because honestly, anything could come up. A patient can have an arrhythmia, a patient could vomit or aspirate. Um, there could be a complication with the surgery, such as unexpected blood loss, and we have to stabilize the patient, whether it's giving medications um, to replace the blood that was lost or giving medications to raise blood pressure. Um, people can have a heart attack on the table. There's all these multitudes of things um, 
that could happen, which is why we're, we have such extensive training so that we can rec one, recognize it, and two, know how to react and treat it appropriately and quickly um, to make sure that patients do well. Um, so it's hard to say exactly what we're on the lookout because we're on the lookout for everything. Um, that's why we have so many monitors and, and we're always with the patients. Patients are never left alone. There's always um, an anesthesiologist or sometimes there's other members of the anesthesia team, such as a nurse anesthetist at all times. Somebody's always there with the patient um, to make sure that they're doing well. And that if anything does happen, it's recognized quickly and can be intervened upon quickly as well. Um, so it's, it's hard to say, like, what exactly are we looking for? Because we're, lo we're looking for everything. Yeah, right right off the bat. I mean, that sounds pretty stressful to me, right? Where, where so many things can happen and you sort of need to always have your, your head on a swivel. How do you feel like you manage that stress in, in, in those situations? And how do you kind of keep yourself uh, cool and composed when, when things might go awry? Well, I feel like they always say like a boring day for an anesthesiologist is a good day because <laughs> that means everything went smoothly and there was no nothing unexpected happens. Um, but I think preparation is key. Um, so some of the things that I that I do is I always make sure that I'm prepared. I try to make sure that um, I'm up to date with all of the, the latest guidelines and practices. I try to know my patients as well as possible. So I'm one of those people who the night before, as soon as I get um, my assignment for the next day, I, I go through the patient's chart and look up their history, read all of their the consult notes um, to make sure that I have a good breadth of an understanding of what that patient is bringing to the operating room so that when something does, so that I can one, be pre prepared to make sure that they're optimized for surgery because I don't want them going in at a disadvantage. I want them going in in their best possible state of health that they can achieve um, so that they have the best outcome possible. Um, so it's like a lot of it's preparation. And then also some things, you know, Someone's best may not be ideal sometimes because um, this is their underlying health condition. So then you want to be prepared about how to manage that health condition the best. Um, for example, somebody might have really bad COPD and at baseline they're wheezing. Um, so it's not ideal if you would want someone to come in and have super healthy lungs, but if they're, but you anticipate that and you realize what that risk that can put them at, and then you come up with the best anesthetic plan to help mitigate and reduce that risk as much as possible. But then you also prepare for worst case scenarios so that let's say they do um, have a pulmonary event, you're there to treat it right away. Um, so it's, I think planning is, is, a, is the way that you handle it the best that you can. But then again, there's so many things that can happen unexpectedly. Um, so it's just about being vigilant um, and, being and just being ready to act if need be. Another interesting question that I'm that that I've kind of thought about for anesthesiology for a while, right? Like medicine in general, people really talk about how they love the the patient interactions. But then when you think of at least when I think of anesthesiology, a good chunk of your time is spent right when the patient is is sort of uh, you know under anesthesia and and kind of out cold. <laughs> so right. do you do you kind of like this aspect of anesthesiology, like working a patient who isn't necessarily like alert and uh, uh, kind of aware? Of well, I, I think it's a great, actually, it's a great responsibility because somebody is trusting us with their life while they're unconscious, essentially. So I take that very seriously and as like a huge responsibility and that I'm the patient's advocate um, while, they're, while they're under anesthesia and while they're having the procedure done. So if I, if I think anything, um, I'm there to advocate for the patient to make sure that... Um, everything is going as intended um, and that everyone in the room has the patient's best interest at heart um, and to, to be an advocate for the patient and, and, and sometimes remind others of um, what we need to do to, to make sh sure that we are respecting the patient's wishes and what's best for them. So it's, it's a little bit different in that we don't have, um, a lot of times we don't have ongoing relationships with patients because we meet them right before the surgery. And then after the surgery, we might see them in the recovery room or visit them the next day, but we don't really have that many, that much ongoing interaction with them because we don't see them for follow-ups in the office and things of that nature. Um, but I feel like we do have a very important role in that we are their advocate, especially when they're under anesthesia. I know the discipline of anesthesia, anesthesiology is, is very kind of connected, right, to, to pain medicine and things like that. And um, I'm sort of just curious to hear like, uh, your perspective on a, a rather simple question, right? What, what is pain? 
What is pain? Interesting question. <laughs> um, well, I guess what I'm getting at, right, is that, you know, you can view pain through a lot of different lenses. You can view it through the physiological lens. Uh, you can sort of view it through the uh, psychological and emotional lens. So in your, you know, unique experience as an anesthesiologist, how do you kind of uh, maybe attend to all aspects of pain? And, 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 and how do you just, uh, yeah, ultimately, like, like characterize pain in those different ways? Um, interesting. It's like a more of a physiological, uh, philosophical question. But <laughs> what is pain? So pain, I think pain is very personal. Um, and people perceive pain in different ways. Um, as physicians, we have different interventions to treat pain that is, um, as physicians in general, um, to treat pain on a physiologic level. So whether that's interrupting pain receptors or um, giving medications that act on pain receptors in the brain um, that perceive pain and, and, and help reduce um, one's pain, or also there's also emotional pain. Um, that some of our, that some of our colleagues in other um, fields might be well more well versed in in, in managing and, and mitigating. Maybe to to separate it down even to more like, do you feel like when you interact with patients, right, uh, they have different tolerances for pain? Of course, everyone. Yes, people have different tolerances for pain. But I think one of the things that I like to do is set people's expectations and let make sure that they're aware that after a major surgery that it's expected to feel some pain. Um, I feel like a lot of times people think that some of the pain medications that we give are like a magic cure and that they shouldn't feel anything. And that's not the case. Pain is actually a very important um, notification to you, your body that there has been a trauma. Um, and that you're healing. So it's actually something important, you know, something that is is natural. Um, and having a major surgery, it's expected to feel some pain afterwards. Like, yes, we could help. We have agents and things that we could do. We have medications, we have procedures, such as peripheral nerve blocks um, that could help reduce that physical pain. Um, but, to but to completely lim eliminate it long-term is something that's, um, while you're recovering from surgery, is, is um, not a real, realistic expectation. And it's important for patients to realize that so that they're not chasing, because we ask them a pain score of zero to 10, how much you're paying, it's important to not chase a zero and realize that the goal is to get you to a tolerable level of pain, because having some pain after surgery is a natural thing. And to completely eliminate it to zero, um, it's not something that we we're striving for, especially long-term, like in the immediate period, if you do a nerve block, we completely numb a limb, of course, you're not going to have any pain for that period. But once the nerve block wears off, you're going to have to inter in, um, add other adjuvants, whether that's pain medication, ice or heat therapy, or um, um, to help reduce the pain. But to, so that's one of the things that I like to do is talk to patients about the expectation of pain after the surgery and make sure that they are aware that there will be some discomfort. Um, but our goal is to make sure that that discomfort is manageable, not to completely eliminate it. Last question on the uh, anesthesiology uh, topic. Um, you've obviously been in anesthesiology and pain management, I think, for for a, for a long time. And um, you know, uh, over that time, I'm sure the 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 uh, topic of opioids has evolved over time. So, how have uh, you know best practice with regards to to pain medications and opioids uh, evolved over time? And and, and like to, to get us to where we are with, with best practices today? Um, so I think the, the, the thought on opioids um, in terms of patient management is, has changed um, since I started my training up until now um, in that we are now more focusing on like a multimodal um, pain management strategy and that we don't focus on just one agent so we try to attack so there's multiple different pathways to pain um, and multiple different receptors and so we try to attack pain from different angles um, so that instead of just using one angle we 
attack multiple different receptors within the brain. So for example, we will give Tylenol, we can also give different forms of NSAIDs, um, things like ibuprofen or Ketorolac or amaloxicam. Um, and then we can also add in other adjuvants like ice therapy, um, physical therapy. Um, um, there's also other methods that we're looking, examining things like acupuncture, meditation, and then there's also opioids that you can add in. So instead of making the sole management being opioids, opioids are just one of the many adjuvants that we use to help reduce pain. So a lot of times we'll tell patients take Tylenol and the NSAID first, um, so like Tylenol and ibuprofen, and then if your pain is unbearable beyond that, then you could add in a little bit of the opioid, but not going directly first to the opioid. Um, and then also when we do prescribe opioids, it's mostly um, um, it's more so for short-term management and um, not long-term management. That's in like the, in the immediate perioperative period of types of patients that I'm talking about. Um, managing other types of pain, whether that be cancer pains, it's, um, that's an, uh, another area and that's more so managed um, by some of like our, our chronic pain um, colleagues. I want to uh, talk now about some of your work in uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I know uh, you're involved at NYU as well as at the, the you know Greater New York Anesthesiology Community uh, yeah. with regards to diversity. I recently read a, a nice paper you wrote that um, explore, explores reasons our healthcare system should pursue uh, you know diversity initiatives, and you you write it uh, from the perspective of looking at it beyond the moral imperative, right? Beyond the fact that it's it's sort of the right thing to do. Um, that there are a lot of uh, other tangible reasons why uh, diversity is really important to our healthcare system. Uh, so can you outline some of those reasons to our listeners? Sure. Um, so a lot of times when people say, like, why should we care about diversity? Everyone initially goes to, oh, the moral imperative that it's like the right thing to do. We need to right past wrongs. Um, but I, in my article, challenge um, the readers to look beyond that and look at some of the, the other reasons. Um, like for example, when you look at our mission statements, whether that is the mission statement of each individual anesthesia department or practice, um, the hospital missions, the missions of our professional societies on state and national levels, they all somehow reference um, providing the highest quality of care to our patients. Um, but I, I question how can we do that if we're not taking our whole entire patient into consideration, like what that patient brings to the table on um, to each interaction, and that includes their background and their experiences, and um, some of their notions about medicine and healthcare and physicians, and um, also some of their cultural practices. That we have to, all of those things um, encompass the patient and how best to care for them, and those are things that we um, need to consider. Um, and I feel like our data shows that we're falling short of that because health disparities continue to exist when you really examine it. So cultural competence is just one aspect of that, just really learning about somebody, um, their background, and how that um, changes the interaction because everyone's not cookie cutter, everyone's not the same, everyone comes in with different notions. And it's important to respect those, acknowledge them, um, and address them so that our message gets across and the patient can receive it appropriately as well. Um, so that helps it, the patient care. It helps the experience. It's been shown that when patients like really understand, like you have more com um, compliance with medications and the healthcare plan and making sure that um, things are understood and, and, and can be followed. And that takes an understanding of the patient. Um, other areas where it's important to have diversity. If you look at research, like historically enrollment um, and research studies of, of um, minorities who have been low and there's a lot of um, mistrust and, and distrust from like, pr um, prior acts. And so it's, it, it transcends all different sectors of medicine. Um, yeah, I'm curious to hear more about the, the research perspective. I know I work in research and um, I could, you know, see in my, my own, uh, you know, I can see in studies, right, that there are a lack of, there's a lack of diversity. How do you kind of uh, uh, cultivate some of that trust so you can have a diverse uh, pool of, of research participants? I feel like it's important to first um, address 
prior wrongs as being <laughs> wrongs, like things like the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, like addressing that that was a wrong, something that should have never happened. And that's not the way that we practice research today. Um, and part of gaining that trust um, is I think, It's, it can be approached in multiple different ways. Not, it's important to address what happened, um, explain that there are different practices in place now, different safety nets, different ways of monitoring um, to make sure that things like that don't happen today. But it's also important to have a diverse research workforce because um, it's, it's important to see who that message is being delivered by as well. I think that could help gain some trust and support um, by having um, more minorities and women in research, um, especially if we're, the goal is to recruit more minorities and women, um, as well as I think that also plays a role into the um, research agenda because people have a tendency to investigate topics that are of personal interest to them. It's just a natural human habit. Um, so by also diversifying the research um, the, the group of people who are performing research, I think we can also have more valuable topics, a more diverse top, uh, amount of topics researched, um, and then also more buy-in because if, when people see that it's not one homogeneous group conducting research, they might be more willing to participate if they feel like um, people have their interest in, in, in their interest in mind and want to protect them as well and and learn more about the diseases or ailments that are affecting their communities, uh, people might be more willing to participate. Um, I'm curious about uh, your perspective on the word uh, equality. I feel like in some ways it means different things to different people. So from, from your perspective as an anesthesiologist and, and working heavily in diversity efforts, what is what does the word uh, equality mean to you? Um, in terms of anesthesia, um, equality, I guess, to me, means having equal access to treatments um, and care, having equal access to the same, having equal access I guess I shouldn't be using the word equal in the definition of equality, but <laughs> having similar access to the same levels of treatment, care, respect um, across the board. So whether you come from a different ethnic background or different socioeconomic class or have a different gender identity or a different disability, um, just being able to get to the optimal and best care that you can get to, I think is a definition of equality. So whether that means having access to um, physicians trained with the latest technology in your, at your local hospital, or even just having the access ramps to get into the hospital if, you're, if you have a disability and you help with access, things like that, or having interpreters where you go to make sure that somebody can tell you what's going on in a language that you understand. Um, I think all of that encompasses equality, uh, making sure that each person, no matter what their situation is, is given the best care possible, um, I think is, is, a, is equality. What has is, what is COVID-19 uh, taught us about healthcare inequities? I know uh, there's just been a, lot, a, a huge amount of research regarding differences in outcome based on a variety of demographic factors. So uh, what are the biggest takeaways you, you found from, uh, from COVID-19 that about uh, regarding uh, healthcare inequities? Um, I think that COVID-19 has taught us things on a multitude of levels, um, just within the hospital and then with our, the greater, our greater, our local communities, the nation, the whole wide world, um, that, there, there, there are a lot of, I guess, areas where we could improve. Um, I feel like we weren't prepared for uh, a pandemic. 
in terms of having the necessary equipment that we needed in terms of those, like PPE for so use like masks for example um, back in 2020 when we first had the surge in New York City um, we didn't have enough N95s for everybody so um, there there was based not everybody in the hospital could have an N95 because it just physically weren't enough and so it became the determining well who was going to have it in 95 and it became quite an issue because a lot of people felt like they weren't protected so for example as an anesthesiologist what we do is we do a lot of airway management so this was a respiratory illness and we're at the we call the head of the bed which is where the head of the, the patient is and we're doing things in people's airways and we're intubating and extubating and and taking care of patients and so we by nature of our job have a little bit of a higher risk um, than somebody else in the who's duties um, may not be in that area or area of patient care. So when the pandemic first happened, naturally um, we were offered a 95, but then other people in the room, maybe some of the nurses in the room or some of the surgeons in the room may not have been offered that. Um, and so, but they're still at risk because we're all still in the same room. So it's like different things along the way um, or even these patients then, after they're out of the operating room, they go to the floor, but then who's cleaning their rooms? Who is um, offering their meals? Who's bringing their meals trays? And like all of these people weren't initially um, given N95s either because there just wasn't enough. And so there, there was already, um, I guess, a disparity happening within our own, within their own institutions of time to care of COVID patients because we didn't have enough to go around. Um, and then, in our local communities, you could see that the CDC has been collecting data that um, people from certain ethnic and race groups, um, like American Indian or Black or African American or Hispanic people, are more likely to be hospitalized or even die from um, COVID-19 versus their white counterparts. Um, and so these disparities are on so many different levels, and I feel like the pandemic kind of just highlighted that in a way. Um, to say, well, like, why is this happening? Is it is it a is it a a number of hospital beds per person in like per capita in certain areas? Is it education? Like, what is what is the cause for um these this, these discrepancies? And I think it's important because it's it's highlighting that there is an issue and that um, it's something that we can should examine and try to improve and it's an area for us to improve upon. Yeah, I I, I think um. Yeah, you, you reiterated a lot of great points that I've heard regarding, you know, uh, how COVID-19 really uh, laid bare some of those things. What are what are some policy changes either at an institutional level or government level that you would like to see that I think that you think could, you know, effectively address these things? So, for example, the NIH in terms of like research, the NIH um, noticed that there's a lot of discrepancy in um, the patient population in a research study versus like the general population. And so they've instituted where like in order to have funding, you have to have adequate plans to recruit minorities and women to make sure that your patient population is reflective of the general population. So that results can be generalizable um, and not just um, unique to a certain subset of people um, within, our, within our countries within our, that we're treating. Um, and that show, even during COVID-19, that showed that that lack of diversity had negative outcomes. For example, if you look at the pulse oximeter, it's a device that we use as anesthesiologists. We've been using it since the 80s, I believe, um, to assess someone's blood oxygen levels during a surgery. Well, all the medical devices have to go through FDA approval. But when you look back at the studies that were done, a lot of them were done on um, the calibration studies were done on people of lighter skin tone. But now research has shown that when the same devices used on someone with a darker skin tone when they're when they're hypoxic and their blood oxygen levels are low, that the device can sometimes overestimate their level. So let's say somebody's oxygen saturation is 70, which is really low, it might show that it's higher. And if you're making um, clinical decisions off of this, which is what was happening with um, people coming into the emergency room with COVID, a lot of times one of the determining factors would be their oxygen saturation level. So if it was above a certain level, then those people were, were sent home to manage COVID at home. Um, but if you're relying on this device, that could be overestimating. So someone could look at me and say, oh, your SAT is 94, 
that's safe to manage at home, but because the device isn't calibrated for my skin tone, which is darker, um, I thought could really be in like the low 80s. And in that case, I would have been kept in the hospital. So I think it's important. So it's just policy changes like that to making sure that the devices that we're using and relying upon are applicable to all people uh, or as, as close to all as we could get is important. Um, making sure that we ha all have access um, to the same levels of healthcare, I think is important as well. And then also just making sure that we're, we're educating people and letting them know that um, the medical field and the medical profession can be trusted because of decades of um, mistrust. So helping to turn some of those um, misconceptions around and letting people know that it's safe and that you could trust your healthcare providers. Um, I think it is, is all important um, aspects. So it's not just like one policy that can be done. I think it's a multitude of things that need to change on, on multiple levels. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, tangent to that, I think a good goal that has been established by a lot of diversity, equity, inclusion efforts, right, is that, you know, you have a hospital, you have a healthcare system, you want, um, you want your hospital and healthcare system, you want both the staff and the patients, I think, to, to reflect the community uh, in which those places reside, right? Um, right. And so I guess I'm still curious, do you have any thoughts on like how uh, steps to make this, uh, you know, happen? I, I think, you know, one solution perhaps is just at an institutional level, instituting, you know, quotas of sorts that uh, basically reflect your community. Um, how, how do you think we can make our, our hospitals and healthcare systems look like our our uh, communities? So I think it's one, the first step in anything is acknowledging there's an issue. <laughs> and then two, which I think we're starting to do now is acknowledging that this is a real issue and this is a, a real problem. And then um, looking at the various solutions. So I think you can't just say, oh, I don't think quotas are necessarily um, a, a solution. I think that what we need to do is examine the reasons maybe why people haven't just um, not been able to access a career in medicine, maybe be discouraged from a career in medicine, um, to make a career in medicine more attractive to, more, to a wider group of people. Um, and by doing that, I think we're doing that a lot now by examining some of our own biases. We all have biases, examining some of our own biases, some of our own misconceptions, um, looking at microaggressions in the workplace to one, create and foster a more welcoming environment. And that happens just on, that happens on the patient side and it happens on um, the provider side as well. Um, there's, there's biases and misinterpretation and racism on both sides of, of, um, of, the, of the curtain. And so I feel like one acknowledging that, making it more of a norm um, to see practitioners of all different genders, races, ethnicities, religions, um, Social orientation, so just make, making sure that everyone is represented. But it also comes with creating that pipeline. You can't just say like, today, oh, I want to have more physicians uh, that represent this group. Like, we have to make sure that pipeline is in place. And so, what a lot of us are doing is a lot of mentoring. Um, so, reaching kids going to elementary schools, high schools, colleges, and making sure that children are aware that this is a career option for them and that giving them a little bit about information about how to achieve that career. So it's like all about creating that pipeline. So create for one, making awareness, letting them know it's possible, having access. Um, so making sure that there's opportunities and making sure that people are getting um, proper education and that people are qualified to come to go to medical school. Um, so making sure they're getting their you know, learn knowing what they have to do. So oh, excelling in science and math and doing this, that, and the other and getting exposure and being a, a great candidate for medical school. Getting through medical school has its own challenges. So, you know, be providing a mentor, being a support, making sure that people have the resources they need to succeed. And then even through residency, even as an attending, we still need support um, from our colleagues and um, our leadership to know that we are welcome here and that everyone wants to see us succeed and, and do well. Um, so that we can live up to the best of our potential and, and then also help others along the way. So I think some of the things that NYU is instituting is that they have like a vice chair of diversity for every single department. Um, so they're really like looking and saying like, oh, this is an issue and we're gonna tackle it head on. So by having a vice chair to really investigate like in each 
Justice Department? What are some of the disparities? What are ways that we can improve? How do we um, increase our, our workforce so that it is more representative of our, of our patient population? Um, it's like one of the, the things that's really positive that's happening and one of the areas of change um, that, I, that I'm hopeful will, will help generations to come. You mentioned uh, bias, right? We all kind of have our, our internal bias when we uh, look at different situations, different people. We just have a bias and, and that's, I guess, part of being human in a way uh, that you, we all need to work on. Um, I think for a lot of people, there's sort of this temptation that they need to, not necessarily temptation, but they feel uh, inclined very uh, to, to acknowledge it on an external level, right? And I think that's that's good to a certain degree. But at the end of the day, I think there's a lot of internal work that needs to be done, right? Sort of in the, the quiet of your own head and heart of, of thinking about, you know, where are the biases in your life? So my question to you is, how do you kind of get people to really uh, take a deeper dive on the, the private level, the individual level, and think about where, you know, they might have biases uh, that they don't necessarily realize? I think it's important to acknowledge it um, as things happen, as things come up, acknowledge it and not a negative, not necessarily a negative or condescending or demeaning way, but acknowledge it more in an informative way, in a supportive way to let somebody know that this is, that this is an issue and how other people may be interpreting their actions or their statements. Um, so that it's something that hopefully you can't force somebody to work on themselves. <laughs> the only thing that you can do is you can work on yourself and and maybe bring it to the attention of that person that um, something that they're doing might be offensive or offending you um, and hope that they will realize that and, and um, do that work themselves. Like for example, I was working um, in the operating room waiting for um, the patient to come in and the surgeon came in the room and said, oh, the anesthesiologist is still with the patient. And I was like, oh no, that's not true. Like, I'm right here. And the surgeon was a male and goes, oh, well, there's this guy in the holding area um, talking to the patient, but also he described one of the nurses. And I said, oh, that's so-and-so, one of the holding room nurses. And then the surgeon goes, oh, it was so much easier back in the day when all the men were doctors and all the women were nurses. And so you still, you still hear, you know, you still see these things to this day. People make these comments and they don't realize that they're being extremely offensive or rude or demeaning to their colleagues. And it's something just to point out to say, like, you know, times have changed. We all have different roles now in the, on the team environment. Uh, and uh, it's something that we, you know, need to acknowledge. And you can't make assumptions based on someone's gender that they have a certain role on the team. Um, but at the, at the end of the day, I can't force him to go back and reevaluate his idea of what um, a male does in the hospital versus what a female does, but it's important to acknowledge it. And I think it, it was something that I needed to do, especially because there were other women in the room. Um, so the, the scrub tech was a female and the, the nurse in the room was also a female. So it's important to acknowledge that, yes, we're, we're, we're all here, we're all here and we all have to have different roles and our gender doesn't define what role we have to have on that team. And it's important to acknowledge that. Um, so I think it's just taking little time, little areas to help educate our colleagues, uh, but what they do with that information, we can't really, we can't control, but I think just acknowledging it and um, hoping that they will help they'll reevaluate their perspective is, is what we can do on a, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, you just mentioned an instance of of sort of like, you know, sexism in a in workplace that I think is probably, especially in healthcare, pretty common, um, unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, which kind of leads me to my another question I was uh, hoping to ask, like, can you just discuss a time where you uh, witnessed racism in our healthcare system and how that that changed you? Um, well, it happens, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, all the time. So it happens to me from when I was a, a, a medical student. So if you, when you, <clears throat> when a lot of times hospital staff, unfortunately, like from prior times, um, generally as like, as the surgeon had pointed out, a lot of times the surgeons were white males and the, the everybody else in the hospital was support, was um, in, in other roles within the hospital. So whether that was nursing or the people who, or our environmental staff who help keep our, our work environment clean or the staff who help 
feed um, our, the staff and patients often didn't look like how the surgeons did 100 years ago, or the, the, the physicians, I should say, not the surgeons. Um, and so even in, in, in like med, throughout medical school, um, even now when I come in, a lot of times what if I come into a patient room, um, I feel like there is a assumption that I'm not the physician when I walk into the room. There's an assumption from the patients that I'm anything but the physician as being a black female. <laughs> so people assume that I'm their nurse, people assume that I'm there to take their lunch order or pick up their um, dinner tray or any other role other than a physician. So I oftentimes, you know, have to identify myself as a physician and sometimes still patients still don't accept that. For example, I had a resident with me, working with me the other, a few months ago, who was a, a tall white male and we had a white male patient and we, I went to interview the patient before the surgery and I was telling him about the procedure and explained to him the anesthesia and the nuances of the nerve block. And as I'm talking to him, looking at him in his eyes, he is looking at my white resident, um, white male resident for reassurance. And for him to, and basically cut me off to have the resident explain um, the procedure to him. So I'm the attending, so I'm the person in charge of the, of the anesthesia team. I'm completing my residency, so I am more trained at this point than the resident, but he was still looking to the resident as a, a white male, thinking that he had more authority um, and expertise in the area, despite us having already told him our different roles on the healthcare team. Um, so it's things like this that you encounter on a, a regular basis, unfortunately. Um, so it comes from both sides. It comes from colleagues. It can come from patients. And uh, um, the important thing to do is I, I would take it as a learning environment, so as a learning opportunity. So I, I, I actually spoke with the resident afterwards, and I was like, and I said, like, did you notice? Um, this is one of our chief residents. I told them about the, I pulled them aside afterwards. And I was like, did you notice how like the patient, you know, did this? Oh, um, and he had picked up on it as well. So we looked at it as like a teaching opportunity, um, just so the resident can learn from it. Um, but it's something that we deal with all the time. So it's not like any like one instance that has been like transformative or life changing. It's just something that you constantly deal with and that you constantly help 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 to reeducate patients. Um, on and let them know that yes, you are qualified to take care of them, that you will do your very best to give them excellent care despite any preconceived notions that they might have about your race or gender or your age um, that they're coming in with. Yeah, sorry to hear about that. I mean, it, it sounds very frustrating. And, um, you know, like I said before, I think it's just a lot of um, just kind of like looking in the mirror and, and thinking like sort of what are your, your almost autopilot mental habits that might not, you know, necessarily reflect, uh, you know, what's actually going on uh, and sort of uh, being honest about them and saying, uh, you know, I need to, you know, be more uh, able to, to see like what's actually going on on the outside. Mm -hmm. uh, my last question is um, related to, this is something you mentioned in your, in your paper. Um, it's it sort of, I, I understand that, that there's been a lot of research to say that, uh, you know, healthcare outcomes are, um, that, that there's better healthcare outcomes with like ethnically concordant uh, relationships. That is, you know, black physicians with that black patients, white physicians with white patients. Is this something our healthcare system should, you know, encourage, discourage, kind of be neutral on? How do you feel about that? Um, so unfortunately, there's not a ton of research because in this topic, which is one thing that I think is now that it's been brought to more light in recent years, that there will be more research on this. Um, this is one study that I read where they noticed that. And so it's important to, I think, explore why that is and to really delve deeper into why they found this. Is it because um, there's more trust from patients because of past um, transgressions? Is it a cultural thing? Is it where um, people know um, a little bit more about someone's background and their culture and how the two, how they would interpret different instructions or medications and how to present information in a different way. Is it um, 
like what we have to really just delve in and figure out why are we seeing this? And instead of just like jumping to a conclusion and saying like, oh, we have concordance with all, with all like patients and physicians, I don't think that's the case. I think we need to just look into see why this happens. And is it a cultural competency issue? So then we need to be more cult culturally competent or, you know, as a, as a whole, as a, as a whole um, workforce, or is there something else that we're missing? So I think that's where we need to look to see why that is, to really delve down deeper and figure out why they're seeing that um, and then how we can um, incorporate that into more of our practices and, and at large and so that we can um, help all patients um, um, achieve like the best health they can. Time for a lightning round, a series of fast-paced fast questions that tell us more about you. Okay. <laughs> What is your favorite soup? My favorite soup? Um, chicken dumpling. Nice. Uh, as I understand, you uh, like to do ceramics in your free time. What do you like to make? Um, right now, well, the last thing I made was a mug. Um, but the next thing I want to make is a, uh, like a teapot to accompany my mug. What is your go-to self-care technique? I have lots of them. <laughs> so I like meditate. I do. I meditate daily. So every morning I meditate. So that's the most common one that I do. What type of meditation? Um, so a lot of like breath work. Um, a lot of, I, so clearing my mind and working on um, doing a lot of breath work. It's a meditation that I do most often. Nice. Yeah. Uh, what is your ideal snow day? My ideal snow day is like today is actually snowing. Yeah. <laughs> it is um, cuddling up on the on the couch with my dog, um, watching a nice movie or a series on TV. And what's the best part about being an anesthesiologist? I think the best part about being an anesthesiologist is the versatility of our work. Um, we're not just in the operating room; we're all throughout the hospital. We're in ICUs as critical care physicians. We are in pain management. Um, so I feel like we are everywhere and we can help patients in a multitude of ways. There's so much versatility to our practice. Um, so we can always keep it interesting. Dr. Ansara Vaz, thanks so much for joining the show. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. That concludes this episode of Esculapius. Till next time, I'm your host, John Neary. Be well.